0: Chapter Six of Molly Brown's Sophomore Days by Nell Speed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Debbie R. Baker Robinson. Two long-distance calls. The president readily granted her gracious permission for the sophomores to use the Wellington Alumni Banner. She was pleased at the class spirit which had engendered the request and which had also prompted the sophomores to make a banner of their own. With reverent hands, the young girls hoisted the two splendid pennants on the evening of the reception, and another unusual distinction was granted this extraordinary class of nineteen-aught. The president and several of the faculty appeared that evening in the gallery to view the effect. Never before in the memory of students had Prexy attended a sophomore-freshman ball. "'They have certainly made the place attractive,' said the president." looking down between the interstices of garlands of Japanese lanterns on the scene of whirling dancers below. The banners are really beautiful. I feel quite proud of my sophomores this evening. The sophomores were proud of themselves and worked hard to make the freshmen have a good time and feel at home. Molly, remembering her own timidity of the year before, took care that there were no wallflowers this gala evening. She had invited Madeleine Petite a lonely little southern girl who had a room over the post office in the village and was working her way through college somehow in spite of her own depleted purse molly had sent madeline a bunch of violets and had hired a carriage for the evening as for the little freshman she was ecstatic with pleasure she never dreamed that her sophomore escort was nearly as poor as she was people of molly's type never look poor The richness of her coloring, her red-gold hair and deep blue eyes, and a certain graciousness of manner overcame all deficiencies in the style and material of her lavender-organdy frock. But, in spite of her glowing cheeks and outward gaiety, Molly was far from being happy that night. No word had come to her from her family all the week, although they were the most prolific letter-writers, all of them. No doubt they hesitated for a while to let her know the truth about the square-deal mine. Molly was prepared for anything, prepared to give up college at mid-years and get a position to teach school in the country somewhere, prepared to look the worst in the face bravely. But Wellington was like a second home to her now. She loved its twin gray towers, its classic quadrangle and beautiful cloisters, its spacious campus shaded with elm trees. How dear these things had grown to her now that the thought of leaving them forced its way into her mind. She was debating these questions inwardly as she gallantly led her partner over to the lemonade table where Mary Stewart in a beautiful liberty dress of pigeon blue that matched her eyes was presiding with Judith Blount and two other juniors. Why Molly Brown exclaimed Mary, in spite of all your glowingness, you don't seem quite like yourself this evening. Has anything happened to roughen your gentle disposition? No bad news from home, I hope. Oh no, returned Molly, no news at all. I haven't heard all week. Judith, who still had a grudge against Queen's girls, although she was endeavoring to overcome it, here remarked, why, I think you're looking particularly well tonight, Molly. Such a becoming dress. Molly flushed as she glanced hastily down at her two-year-old organdy. Mary Stewart put a hand over her cold, slim fingers. You always wear becoming dresses, Molly, dear. In fact, they are so becoming that no one ever looks at the dress for looking at you molly smiled and pressed her friend's hand in return she was wondering if judith blount would learn to curb her tongue when she had to curb her expenses i want you to meet miss petite she said introducing the little freshman to the two older girls mary stuart shook hands kindly and judith bowed distantly certainly judith was in a bad humor that night how do you like wellington asked mary of miss petite by way of making conversation i think it's just lovely drawled the little southerner with her inimitable louisiana accent i never danced on a better floor before in all my life mary stuart smiled the soft melodious voice was music to her ears you live in the quadrangle don't you i think i saw you there the other day continued mary oh no i reckon you saw some other girl i live over the post office in the village she has a charming room, broke in Molly, when she was interrupted by a stifled laugh. Looking up quickly, they were confronted with Judith and one of her boon companions, their faces crimson with suppressed laughter. Miss Petite regarded the two juniors with a kind of gentle amazement. Then, without the slightest embarrassment, she said to Mary and Molly, What lovely manners some of the Wellington girls have. At this uncomfortable juncture, Edith Williams sailed up this is my dance isn't it mademoiselle petite and while we dance i want you to talk all the time so that my ears can drink in your liquid tones have you heard her speak miss stuart isn't it beautiful it's like the call of the wood pigeons so soft and persuasive and delicious now you'll flatter me said little miss petite but i'm glad it doesn't make you laugh anyhow and she floated off in the arms of the tall edith as gracefully as a fluffy little cloud carried along by the breezes isn't she sweet said molly presently and you can't imagine what she is doing to make both ends meet here she won a scholarship which pays her tuition but she has to earn the money for board and clothes and all the rest she washes dishes at a boarding house for her dinners and cooks her own breakfasts in her room and eats well any old thing for her lunch on her door is a sign that says Darning, copying, pressing and fine laundry work, shampooing and manicuring. It makes me feel awfully ashamed of my small efforts. Is it possible? exclaimed Mary. How can I help her, Molly, without her knowing it? She seems to be a proud little thing. Oh, I don't know. Give her some jabots to do up or have your hair shampooed. She does hand painting on China, too, but I don't think you could quite go her pink rose designs. She'll outgrow hand-painted china in another year, just as I outgrew framed lithographs and intimate cassars in one evening after seeing your rooms in the quad angle. By the way, Molly, have you invited anyone for the Glee Club concert yet? No, because I didn't know anyone well enough to ask except Lawrence Upton from Exmoor, and Judith has already asked him. Good, said Mary. Then will you do me a favor? Brother Willie is coming down to the concert and expects to bring two friends, Will you take one of them under your wing? Molly was only too delighted to be of service to the friend who had done so much for her. It will be a pleasure and a joy, she said, as she hastened away to find her small partner for the next waltz. The jokes and croaks stage of the sophomore freshman reception had been reached, and Catherine Williams, speaking through the megaphone, was saying, an art contribution from the juniors with accompanying verse. I never saw a purple cow and never hoped to see one, but this I know, I vow, I trow, I'd rather see than be one. While Catherine read the verse, another girl held up a large picture entitled The Flight of the Royal Family. In the foreground was a little purple cow grazing on purple turf, and in the background, running at full speed with every indication of extreme terror on their faces, were a dozen queens wearing gold crowns and lavender and primrose robes. Hardly a girl at Wellington, but had heard of the absurd adventure of the Queen's girls, and a tremendous laugh shook the walls of the gymnasium. In the midst of this uproar, someone touched Molly on the shoulder. It was a junior known to her only by sight who whispered, You're wanted on the telephone. Now all telegrams to Wellington College were received at the telegraph office in the village and telephoned over and when Molly was notified that there was a message for her, she felt instinctively that it was a telegram from home, and they would only telegraph bad news, she was certain. Her face was pale and her heart thumping as she hurried out of the gymnasium. Nance and Judy rose and followed her. If anything was the matter with their beloved friend, they were determined to share her trouble. Molly hastened to the telephone booths in the main corridor. Is it a telegram? She asked the young woman in charge of the switchboard for in the last few years telephones had been installed in all the houses of the faculty and their respective offices as well, thereby saving many steps and much time. Hello? Long distance? called the girl without answering Molly's question. Here's your party. Booth number two, she ordered. The operator had very little patience with college girls, and this atomless Eden palled on her city-bred soul. Hello? said Molly. Then came a small, thin voice, an immense distance away, but strangely familiar. Is this Miss Molly Brown of Kentucky? Yes. Who is this? This is Richard Blount. Have you forgotten me? Of course not. Is your mother Mrs. Mildred Carmichael Brown of Carmichael Station, Kentucky? Yes. Um, I suppose you think it's very strange, Miss Brown, my asking you this question, called the thin, faraway voice. I had a very good reason for asking it. Have you heard from home lately? Not for a week. Is anything the matter with my family besides the... No, no, nothing that I know of. Is it about the mine? Yes, but you are not to worry. You understand, you are not to worry one instant. Everything will come out all right. It was nearly $10,000, said Molly, almost sobbing. Our house and garden and the rest of the apple orchard that was sending me to college... Here she broke down completely. I may have to give up all this. I may... Now, Miss Molly, you mustn't cry. You make me feel like the very, very unhappy way off here. Five minutes up, called the voice of the exchange. Goodbye, goodbye, called Molly. I'm sorry I cried, Mr. Blount. Poor man. It was all terribly hard on him, and it was cruel of her to have given way, but it had come so unawares. From a corner of her eye, she could see her friends waiting anxiously outside the booth. She pretended to be writing something on the telephone pad with a stubby pencil tied to a string until she recovered her composure. "'What's the matter?' demanded the two girls as she emerged from the booth. "'It was just a long distance from Richard Blount,' said Molly, not knowing what else to say. "'I didn't know you had asked him to go to the Glee Club concert,' said Nance. "'He can't go.' molly replied quickly relieved that they had been willing to accept this explanation i should think he couldn't put in judy in a low voice mama has just written me such news about the blounts the letter came by the late mail and i didn't have a chance to read it until a little while ago mr blount has failed and gone away no one knows where they thought they could pay off his creditors and his family found that he had mortgaged all his property and there wasn't any money left In the dimly lighted corridor, the girls had not noticed that Molly had turned perfectly white and was clasping and unclasping her hands convulsively in an effort to retain her self-control. No money left, she repeated in a low voice. Not a cent, said Judy. Papa knows because he had some friends who lost money in a mine or something Mr. Blount owned. Poor Judith, observed Nance. Do you suppose she hasn't been told? Of course not. She wouldn't be flounting around here tonight if she knew her family were in trouble. How strange for us to know, and for her not to, pursued Nance. It isn't generally known. Mamma says the papers haven't got hold of it yet, and I'm not to tell. You see, Mamma and I met Judith Blount one afternoon at a matinee just before college opened. That's why she was interested, because she remembered that Judith was Mr. Blount's daughter all this time molly's mind was busy working out the problem of how to remain at college without any money of course the blounts couldn't pay their father's debts on nothing although richard blount had told her not to worry the family would have to move out of their old homes she supposed and take a small house in town and everybody would have to just turn in and go to work oh why had her mother heeded the advice of old colonel gray he had assured her that she would make at least fifteen thousand from the money invested while he poor man had squandered his entire inheritance in the enterprise, just because an old and intimate friend was backing it. That old and intimate friend was Mr. Blount, and Molly had never guessed it. Pretty soon it was time to go home. Molly found herself in the carriage, trying to listen politely to the ceaseless flow of Miss Petite's conversation, while she wrapped her old gray eider-down cape about her and thought and thought. Suddenly the words of Madeline Petite pierced her troubled mind. Do you write, Miss Brown? I wish I could. I'd like to try for some of the prizes for short stories. Think of winning a $1,000 for one story. Wouldn't it be glorious? Then there are some advertisement prizes, too. One for $500. Think of that. I always cut out every one I see, meaning to compete, but I never do. It isn't in my line, you see. I'm going to major in mathematics. Molly smiled that the dainty little creature should have chosen that hated subject for her life's work. "'You say you saved the clippings about prizes?' she asked when they had reached Madeline's lodging. "'Oh, yes. I have them all in my room. Would you like to see some of them? Tell the man to wait, and I'll bring them down.' Molly reached Queen's that night before the other girls, and hastening to the student's lamp, she proceeded to look over the clippings. One was from a leading woman's magazine— one from a magazine of short stories several from advertising firms the best jingle about a stove polish the best catchy phrase about a laundry soap the best advertisement in verse or prose for a real estate company which had purchased an entire mountain and was engaged in erecting numbers of swiss chalets for summer residents the pictures of these pretty little houses were very attractive many of them had poetical names one of them called the chalet of the west wind occupied the center of the page From its broad gallery could be seen a long vista of valley flanked by mountain ranges. What a charming place, thought Molly. And that night she went to bed with the chalet of the west wind so deeply photographed in her mind that she almost felt as if she had been there herself. She could see it perched on the side of the mountain, looking across the valley. It was at the very edge of the forest. The picture showed that, and in her imagination, she scented the wild flowers that must grow at its feet in the springtime. No doubt, the west wind, which symbolized health and happiness, fair weather and sunshine, blew softly through its open casements and across its spacious galleries. She went to sleep dreaming of the chalet of the west wind, and in the morning, something throbbed in her pulses. It was a kind of muffled pounding at first, like the beginning of a long-distance call, lumpety-tum-tum. Lumpity-tum-tum. But gradually a poem took shape in her mind, and as the fragments came to her, she wrote them down on scraps of paper and hid them carefully in her desk. End of chapter 6